This message first aired on the radio on February 19th, 2004. As we conclude the epistle to the Corinthians, we're here in the 15th uh, chapter, and we're coming near to the end. We have one more chapter after this. And as we conclude the 15th chapter, we need to keep in mind our subject matter is the resurrection of the dead, or literally, really in this case, he's discussing the resurrection out from the dead. This is the first resurrection, which the Lord Jesus Christ commenced in his own resurrection. He being the first of the first fruits. Then there's the first fruits harvest. This is the grain harvest. And after that, there's the general harvest, or the barley harvest, or the grain harvest. Uh, this corresponds in time to the time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost, which is the ingathering of that very harvest. And uh, that's important for us to notice and to take note of because that's approximately, I believe, the time of year that this epistle is delivered to the Corinthians. So they're able to, to look at this in that context, and that would be the springtime where that harvest would commence and it would be completed at the beginning of the summertime or at least on our calendar in that term. Now we have here verses 50 through 58 today but because it ties so tightly together here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 we're going to look up above and take the three verses that we looked at before and maybe take another look at them to certify to ourselves we've looked at them thoroughly. We have verse 40, really verse 45. It was written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So we have two federal heads. We have the head of the old nature, the head that we all have our genealogy in, and whereby we've acquired our uh, nature to sin. That's Adam. And uh, he's the one who sinned, and everybody after him sinned even though we don't sin in necessarily the same way that Adam did in so far as uh, we don't partake of a forbidden fruit in the literal sense that he did, yet we all sin. And uh, one of the abundant truths is that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We see that in the book of Romans. That's the condition that all of us are in because we're all in Adam. But that's the bad news. That's not the good news. The good news is, howbeit that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural of course part of the good news is that the spiritual comes after the natural we all experience the natural man and the sinfulness of the natural man and then there comes a time when we can come into faith and at such time as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ we are placed into him and we become federated in his genealogy as it were We become now in the Lord's line, and we become part of the new humanity that has as its federal head, not Adam, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So he points out that historically, Adam came first, then the Lord Jesus Christ came, and so it is in the individual life. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, Such are they also that are heavenly. Now we come to verse 49, and we have this. As we have borne the image of the earthy, of course, that's the image that we have. No matter how good we might look, we bear the image of the earthy. It's this declining, corruptible self that we have, this mortal self. We're able to be killed. We are corrupting. We're declining. 
in our capabilities, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now that's just stated as a fact. The language here, very simple, very straightforward. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. That is a certain fact. If we're in Christ, if we receive that second man, the Lord from heaven, if we have received him by faith, then we've been given a new nature, and it is a certainty that we will bear the image of the heavenly, just as certain as it is that we bear today the image of the earthy. Now, I know that there are some, in fact, I knew a man personally, who tried to convey that verse 49 was an exhortation, that we have borne the image of the, of the earthy, so let us bear, or we need to bear, the image of the heavenly. Well, no matter how hard I try, my friend, I'm in this corruptible. And uh, this is not the image that's on the inside. This is not the image of the new nature that has not yet been seen. This is about an image. This isn't about some faith here. This is about an image. It is the word icon, and it means image. Well, now, I have the certainty that I will bear the image of the heavenly, but there is nothing about me that looks heavenly. No matter how great my hair looks, I do not look heavenly. And neither do you, and neither does anybody here below. The only one who right now bears the image of the heavenly is our Lord Jesus Christ, who's in resurrection. But it's just as certain, despite the fact that we've not seen it, and that it hasn't happened, it is as certain that we will bear the image of the heavenly, that we will have resurrection bodies, how certain is it? Well, in this language, it is as certain as we are standing here, as the phrase goes. It is certain that we will bear the image of the heavenly as that we right now bear the image of the earthy. So I want to clear that because the apostle here is not exhorting anybody. He's simply teaching the blessed truth and fact that every child of God will be raised from the dead gloriously. And every person will be raised from the dead, by the way, but not necessarily to glory. Some will be raised from the dead and outfitted with bodies suitable for the destruction that they face in the lake of fire. A serious uh, matter that that is, that's what the scripture tells us here. Now, we come to verse 50, and that's what the apostle says. Now this I say, brethren, and here he's talking to brethren. This is only understood by those who have trusted Christ as Savior, have a new nature that's fitted to understand these things. He says, Brethren, I say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here it is. Flesh and blood are unable to inherit the kingdom of God. There is nothing about flesh and blood that can sustain the kingdom of God of course, this implies in its permanent state, that is, its, its state as it comes, as it's coming. Remember, it says inherit. That has to do with after death. So here it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, flesh and blood today has been translated into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. I'm already translated into his kingdom. And if you've been with us for a while, you remember that we distinguish the kingdom of God not as some kind of superset into which the kingdom of heaven resides. That doesn't just work for us at all. But the kingdom of God is always spoken of positively. The kingdom of God is always God's things, God's way. 
and have already been translated into God's things, God's way. But this has to do with inheriting the kingdom of God. And because it has the word inherit, we always know that's on the other side of the grave. Whether we die to get there or we have a little surprise here, if we just get translated physically there or then. We might just say then, not there. Because the kingdom of God here is a then. It implies that the context here is the kingdom of God as it comes and is made manifest to all. Flesh and blood cannot or not is not able to inherit the kingdom of God. And of course here, because it says flesh and blood, uh, some people go overboard and say, well, there's not going to be any flesh to the new body. Well, I don't know the form that the kind of flesh that it is, but our Lord Jesus Christ had flesh and bones. Flesh and bones. When he rose from the dead, he had this glorified body. It was able to pass through substances, but it had flesh and bones. One of the things people don't really talk about, we talk around the faith too much, but we don't talk about those concrete things. And I find it, by the way, very helpful to take these concrete things to people and see if they really believe it. We seem to have a lot of trouble about who really believes and who doesn't really believe, but I've found it useful in my Christian life to just get the facts out with people if they'll really talk to you about them and ask them if they believe the literal facts of the Scripture, especially the Lord's resurrection. You might be surprised that people don't really believe in the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, though the doctrines of their church organizations may technically declare that they hold those truths. And so we can read, for example, in the Scriptures that the Lord's new body is indeed a physical body. And I'm going to turn here now to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read a little bit in Luke 24, and here we see in verse 36, we'll just try to assume a context here for a minute, and as they spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. This is now the apostles in Jerusalem, the eleven are gathered together, that's what it says. Uh, Verse 33, they rose the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them. So the eleven were together, and there were others. And now here Jesus, uh, as they spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And he said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and afraid, and supposed they had seen a spirit. So they were supposing that they were seeing a spirit. They couldn't believe their eyes, literally. And so they were theorizing among themselves that it was some kind of spiritual apparition, I suppose, some kind of apparition that they were seeing, that they were somehow seeing visibly a spirit. And Jesus said unto them, verse 38, Luke 24, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? He said, Why are you trying to reason in your heart contrary to what you see here? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me. Now he tells them to handle him. There was a time prior to this that he told them, uh, he told uh, one of the women, touch me not. But now he says, handle me and see, or handle me and behold me. He says, now behold my hands and feet, handle me and behold, or see. Make yourselves aware and uh, acknowledge the sensory data that is before you. A spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. 
Now you will be surprised if you inquire, and go ahead and do the inquiry. I recommend it to you. You'll be surprised as you inquire with people if they believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a body of flesh and bones, and very many who claim themselves to be Christian, who maybe subscribe to a Christian church that formally has the doctrine of the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll see that people do not believe that, but that they say, no, I think it was a spiritual thing. I do not think it was a material thing. I don't believe, I think he's just a spirit. I remember one night, to my shock, hearing Pat Robertson on the 700 Club announce on television, and I heard it twice with my own ears. I even called the uh, number to tell whoever answered it to get away from this character. He's bad news. I heard Pat Robertson say that Jesus Christ is a spirit, that he's just a spirit, that he is a spirit, not that he had flesh and bones. And so here you see, uh, he says, no, you're not looking at a spirit. Handle me. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, but a man does have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, in other words, why they while they yet did not uh, really apprehend their own thoughts and bring them down to the table because they were so excited, they were so joyful, and they were so wondered, and they were in such awe, he said, Have you here any food? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. Now here they say, well, well here's some. Here's some fish, and here's a honeycomb. Here's a, here's a little fish and, and a honey. In fact, these are together broiled fish and, and, and honeycomb. Uh, this is a common fare. This is what they were eating. And he took it and he ate before them. Now a body eats. And he's got a fully human body. But it's in resurrection. Now the scripture did not say flesh and bone does not inherit the kingdom of God. It says flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course the Lord Jesus shed his blood and presented his blood to God the Father. Here he doesn't say he doesn't have flesh and blood. He doesn't say, a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see me have. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. And then he took that fish with the honeycomb, and he ate it in front of them. And he said unto them, These are the words I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So first the Lord Jesus Christ had them certify to themselves that he indeed rose from the dead, and following that he opened their understandings and they were their understanding and showed them out of the scripture things concerning himself and opened their understanding that they would be able to apprehend and understand the scriptures. Well, my friends, that's what God has done for you. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, Thomas later came and said, I'm not going to believe till I touch him. And of course, we know he did do that. And he said, blessed are they who have not seen and believe. Well, that's us blessed. And not only have we believed in the literal resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have understanding to understand the scriptures. And therefore, we have the certain knowledge that we also will be raised because not only was he in the resurrection, friends, he is the resurrection and the life. And there you have it. We'll be back in just a minute for more good stuff out of 1 Corinthians 15. Won't you stay with us? I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. 
As we come back now to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, where he says in writing that, I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we understand, therefore, that it does not mean flesh and bones, but flesh and blood, which today we're all flesh and blood, and we realize that the inheriting of the kingdom of God cannot be done in this present body. Two reasons. One, because it's mortal, and secondly, that is subject to death, and secondly, because it is corruptible, subject to winding down and a corruption. And, of course, the apostle, as he continues in verse 50, corroborates by saying, neither does corruption inherit in corruption. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither can a corruptible body inherit incorruption. In fact, what does a corruptible body do? It inherits death and a termination. Uh, So now he says, verse 51, Behold, that is, pay attention, I show you a mystery. Here's a secret. This is something that has not been said before. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not hid to anyone. This is a mystery associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what he tells the believers. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We'll not all sleep, but we will all undergo a marvelous transformation. We'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This word for moment, this is the word atomos, which we took that word and applied it to the basic building blocks of uh, element. Atomic is the smallest indivisible unit uh, that we have. That's what it means. This cannot be divided. Atomos means it cannot be cut or divided. And so the smallest particle of time, that's what we have here in a moment, or the smallest atom of time, an indivisible moment, an indivisible piece of of time in the twinkling of an eye. And of course, that's a figure of the smallest amount of time that we can even consider. At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And now we see that the resurrection out from the dead is really two distinct groups. It is those who are sleeping, and it is those who are still alive. And they both will take part in the resurrection out from the dead in the first resurrection. It'll happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Now some people say, well, this is at the last trump, Therefore, it must be one of the seven trumpets blown by angels. But we'll see here as we look into some more doctrine uh, further along in the scripture in First Thessalonians, we'll see that this is not the trumpet of angels. This is a trumpet of God. Here it is, the last trump. That's the assembly trumpet. That's the assembly call, the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So who's the corruptible that puts on incorruption? Those are they who have died, or who are said to be sleeping in Christ. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are said to be sleeping. They are corruptible, that's why we've buried them, but they will put on incorruption. Well, this mortal must put on immortality. That's not them, that's we who are alive and remaining. We will put on immortality. So when this corruptible, verse 54, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now we see here two shouts. We have the correspondence. Death, where's thy sting? The mortal say that. They say, okay, death, we, you see those who are alive and remain and are translated. This is a great mystery. They will be able to say, O death, where is thy sting? Those who have been buried and have corrupted and are now putting on incorruption, they'll be able to say, O grave, where is thy victory? So we have those two statements by two different company, uh, those who have died and gone to sleep in the Lord, and then those who are remaining who will be translated. Now this brings to our minds and to our consideration the fact that doctrine progresses in the New Testament. One of the reasons that we're taking up the nine epistles consecutively, and there are more epistles than nine, but the nine epistles to churches or groups of churches, starting with the book of Romans and ending with Second Thessalonians, the reason we're taking those together in part is to trace the progress of doctrine through the New Testament writings. Now, when I say the progress of doctrine, I don't mean that doctrine continues to progress in the Christian faith throughout all time. It hardly does that. Once the scriptures are written and we have the full, complete scriptures, there's no more progressive revelation by any means. But as the Bible itself unfolds, there is a progress of doctrine. I think this is a very overlooked area of scripture, and it's why very many people either don't like the Bible and it becomes unpalatable to them because they can't make sense of it, or worse than that, they're misled into following practices and thoughts and beliefs that are unbiblical in that they are untimely. But there is a progression of doctrine in the prophetic writings as we read the Gospels distilled down into the book of Acts and then we see the progress of Bible teaching through all the epistles of what we commonly call the New Testament writings and uh, culminates in the final prophecy of the Revelation. Until you understand how these doctrines are being laid out in time and how they're being developed, you may mistakenly set one piece of scripture against another piece of scripture or fault it for being incomplete when in fact at the time of its writing it wasn't intended to be complete it's entirely a hundred percent accurate but it looks forward to and pre-states things that are put together in more detail such is this mystery that we see in first corinthians fifteen now he told them that when he was with them he couldn't teach him a mystery but here he's laying one out and this is the great mystery of the coming of the Lord which will include both those who are asleep and those who are alive and remain and the great mystery is that we'll not all die some of us will be taken up alive because of the time in which we live and when the Lord comes from heaven and he has this assembling shout the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive and remain will also be caught up with them now we see this laid out more completely in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. So let's just turn ahead to that and see how these two dovetail together, where the apostle now says, Brethren, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant. Here's the thing in 1 Thessalonians that the brethren weren't to be ignorant about. And, of course, this is one of those six don't be ignorant about things things. 
I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, those who have already died, those who have gone before, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you sorrow not, either even as others, which have no hope. Now this is timely scripture, especially at a funeral, because there are some people who have no hope, and they live according to that uh, statement that we read uh, sometime here ago in 1 Corinthians, earlier, the recent statement of the 15th chapter, if there's no resurrection, uh, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So some have no hope, and they live without hope, and they die without hope. And they mourn without hope, the lost loved ones. But we're not like that. We don't have no hope. So we mourn differently. So here it says that I would not have you to be ignorant concerning those who are asleep, so that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. We still sorrow, but we sorrow differently. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and of course we do believe that, but if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, this has led many to say, well, they slept in Jesus. Now, that's a, it doesn't mean, it's a, the, the, the thought that everyone here is in Christ and has believed uh, doesn't really even need to be said contextually. It's it's obvious. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's them. Even so also them which sleep through Jesus will God bring with him. In other words, through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ in his return, God will bring about a resurrection and will return all of us with him. Of course, his death becomes our death. That's what our baptism signifies after we've trusted in Christ and his life becomes our life. And so through Jesus, God will also bring all who have slept, all who are dead. And here the apostles teaching the Thessalonians, for example, how to handle the death of a loved one who has believed. But for this we say unto you, verse 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not prevent them which are asleep. That is, we won't have any advantage on those who have fallen asleep. This word prevent, an old English word, it means that we won't go or come before them. Uh, We'll be together with them. Because we're alive doesn't give us any advantage. We won't uh, prevent or go before those who are asleep. The Lord will raise them. For the Lord, here verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Uh, So first we see here the shout. Uh, this is a, this word for shout has to do with a word of command. It has to do with a word of command. The Lord will descend from heaven with a word of command. The Lord Jesus Christ said that he is the resurrection and the life. He says there's a day coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. And when he went to see his friend Lazarus who was dead for four days, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead heard his voice, and out came Lazarus. He couldn't do anything else. When he was commanded to come forth, that's exactly what he did. So we have the Lord Jesus descending from heaven with a shout, and that shout is, Come forth, you dead ones, and be translated, you live ones. And uh, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So, be comforted with these words. It's a certainty. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. 
He'll call the dead to life. He'll call those of us who are mortal into mortality. We will answer, back here now, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 55, we'll answer that with, O death, where is thy sting? Those of us who are alive will say, Ah, 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 death, you couldn't sting me. And those who come up out of the graves will say, Well, grave, where's your victory? Because I have just triumphed over you at the word of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the sting of death is sin. And so when we rise up, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And so when we rise up, uh, or translated either way, the sting of death is gone. Those who overcome the grave, or we who escape death, the sting of death is gone because sin is overcome and we arise with no sin. And the strength of sin is the law. And of course, we're free from the law now and will never be under the law again. So now the apostle breaks into great praise here in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 57. He says, Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what victory is that? It's the victory over sin and death. It's the victory over the grave and death. Well, if you're like me, you consider death from time to time, and you think about what a great terror it is. In fact, death strikes us all with sobriety. And that's why the scripture says you'll find wise people in a house of mourning, but you'll find a bunch of fools in a house of feasting or a house of mirth. But here he says, thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that closes this doctrinal section of the epistle to the Corinthians. It closes about these ridiculous people inside the Corinthian church who were teaching against the resurrection as if it was not scientifically possible, it certainly wasn't going to happen, and so forth. And he defeats them with the triumphant statements concerning our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just would, and we should all desire, that these kind of ridiculous and false teachings that get play in our churches, that they'd be opposed with sound doctrine, and that our churches would be restored to become the pillars and support of the truth. Now, I don't say that that's going to happen. I certainly don't. I'm not thinking that it will happen. But I will say it ought to happen. And friend of mine, you have no reason to sit in a church and listen to lies. None whatsoever. We're of the truth. And it's not the church if it's not the pillar and support of the truth. Now we have verse 58. Closing this portion of the epistle, not the epistle, but of the chapter, Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore what? Because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the certainty of our own, the glory of his coming, be steadfast, unmovable. Now that means steadfast in teaching, unmovable in doctrine. Don't be moved by these people. You be steadfast and hold on to the truth. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And here he segments off the company who's actually laboring in the Lord. And he says, you don't let these who are laboring after their own bellies trouble you. You be steadfast. You be unmovable. You labor in the Lord, and you will see the abundance in your labor uh, that I see in mine. That's the apostle giving them that kind of encouragement. As you know, he labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. Well, we're going to take up a touchy subject in a minute, so stay with us, because we're going to turn to the first portion of 1 Corinthians 16 today. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net.
We have a very good transition here into the 16th chapter. It's a good natural break and probably well placed as we put chapter breaks. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. And this was probably the, well, it is the last question that he's dealing with. And this was another question that maybe they didn't ask him, but he needs to raise with them because it is something that he's quite involved in. The the apostolic ministry of Paul was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And there was this problem of the believers in Jerusalem being under extraordinary persecution because of Emperor Claudius's decrees. And so he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Now here he is. He has already ordered the churches of Galatia to help the church, uh, the, the, the believers in Jerusalem, to help the church that was there, and to help them financially. And we have here a portion of Scripture that is so poorly abused today Uh, because there are so many who either want to put bondage upon the believer, who do not uh, care to hearken to the scripture that God desires no compulsion in giving, that God loves a hilarious giver, or whatever, or who let their financial goals become the main support and the main thrust of their ministry, that this portion of scripture is very poorly taught. And uh, it's not that hard to see what's going on here, except once you have your agenda of raising money out of focus. Here it says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And this is what the subject is. This is not a general subject of giving. There are plenty of passages of Scripture that encompass the subject of giving and the need for Christians to be giving and to give. In fact, we've already covered teaching of that here in this epistle. He's not raising that issue again as if he didn't teach it thoroughly before. He taught about the labor being worthy of his support. That's not this. This is a special collection under special circumstances for the believers in Jerusalem who are persecuted. This is not about the Corinthian building fund. This is not some special collection for their own purposes and use. And it's not a regular thing. Not only is it a one-time issue, it's a one-time collection. It is a one-time collection. And we come to this here so that we can straighten out, well, so we can teach 1 Corinthians 16. And we can understand that circumstances like this arise. He gave orders to Galatia to help the church in Jerusalem. And now he's giving the same order to the church here in Corinth to help the church in Jerusalem and the believers that are there. And he says, upon the first of the week. Now here's a phrase of scripture that's used three times. It's used in John's gospel. And he's talking about the first of the Sabbaths because there are two of them. In fact, it's the first Sabbath before Passover. It's the day of the unleavened bread. And uh, it's the first of the Sabbaths. It is not, as translated in the King James Version, the first day of the week. Many people give either this passage or Acts chapter 20 as a reason why Christians ought to meet on Sunday. Well, I think Christians ought to meet on Sunday if it's convenient. And in our society today, it is convenient. Now you say, well, my goodness, this is such a deep matter of history in Christian practice. Yes, it is. There's no question that around the world where Christianity has a good solid hold, 
that the Christians meet on Sundays. I remember being in the United Arab Emirates and talking to a believer. They were having a very difficult time with their meetings because Sunday is just another day of the week in the United Arab Emirates. And I said, well, why do you feel compelled to meet on Sunday? Why don't you just meet on Fridays like the Muslims do, and then maybe you'll be left alone a little bit? After all, Islam declares that we'll kill the Jew on Saturday and we'll kill the Christian on Sunday. There's nothing in the Scripture that tells us that we need to gather on Sunday and there's nothing in the scripture that tells us that we can't and this is not a scripture that even has to do with the first day of the week as it's translated it has to do with the first of the sabbaths and it is part of the calendar carried over from the hebrews and it has to do with the time broadly speaking i won't go into all the vast details but it has to do with the time broadly speaking near the passover and it has to do with the time when the feast, by the way, the Feast of the First Fruits takes place. In fact, there are four of the feasts at this general time within a couple of months. There's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, there's the Feast of the Passover, there's the Feast of the First Fruits, and there's the Feast of Pentecost. And it's the time of the harvest. So here he's saying, at the first of the Sabbaths, every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. Now, let me just say, that they're in an agrarian society and this is when they know how they've done this is when they know how they've done and according to how well they've done he said you go ahead and give according proportionately to how well you've done this year I'm appalled at how many find tithing in this passage there's no discussion whatsoever of tithing Tithing is not found in the prophetic writings that we call the New Testament. There is nowhere in the whole New Testament where tithing was placed upon the believers. God would have us to be free. God would have us to be without compulsion. God would have us to be without law in these matters. And God would have us to be hilarious givers who are led by the Spirit of God, and there is no substitute for that. In this particular case, they were to determine on their own private basis how well they had prospered and they would set aside in their own storage he says let in the first of the Sabbath every one of you lay by him in store that is in your own private storage as God has prospered him you decide and you lay it aside yourself why is that that there would be no gatherings when I come now here he's talking about essentially a tax. He's talking essentially about a tax on the believers that he's calling for so that they can help the other believers who are in so much desperate condition. And uh, he says, let each of you lay aside this in store by yourself so that when I come, this isn't going on. Now the apostle went out of his way to write a letter to the Corinthians to make sure that there were no taxings going on when he was there. Now, how is that compared to today? Uh, today, I don't care, universally, you go into churches, you'll find all kinds of things different, but one thing you won't find is different. They'll all take in collections, or just about all. Have you ever been to a church where there's no collection taken? Well, I'll tell you what, it can be done. And that is the practice that God calls for. Look, the apostle said, I don't want any taxes being collected when I get there. 
let's have this all over with. Let each one determine in his own heart what he's going to give according to the prosperity that God has prospered him. Now that has to do with profit. I'm appalled today that God's people are in such serious financial condition and they're in debt and they're the servants of men and rather than using the opportunity to get out of debt and be the Lord's free man, they have shepherds telling them, well, uh, don't get out of debt without tithing, without giving me 10% of your money or 15 Of course, they call it God's money. But everything is God's, my friend. The money of the unbeliever is God's. The unbeliever himself is God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that's not really anything to talk about. God wants a hilarious, willing giver. And that means that it's important to stop the programs and let God do the work in the heart of each individual one to give according as he has been led by the Spirit of God to do. In this case, there's a commandment of a gathering for a specific purpose. It's not only a one-time gathering, but it's a one-time set-aside. And it's a set-aside. This would be like setting something aside after you've got your tax returns all done or after you've got your financial statement in in your business to see how well you've done. Now that you see whether you've prospered or not, give accordingly. There might be those who don't prosper at all. It does happen. I know that many of us get arrogant and high-minded and we just think that the money will come in and that somehow God or man owes us whatever it is. But there are those in our society who don't necessarily make money every year. And that's what the agrarian system really is all about. In fact, I studied the dismal science of economics in college, and one of the things we learned is that the agrarian nature of things is what causes business cycles, and sometimes you make nothing. And the apostle never regarded that somebody who made nothing would set something aside out of it. Now, we could talk more about giving, but this is a specific purpose and a one-time thing. According as they prosper, the emphasis I want to make is what Paul said, that there would be no taxings when I come. Now, here's a faithful brother. Here's the one we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to follow this fellow who went to great lengths to make sure there wasn't a collection. And you just look for that preacher. That's a good preacher. He says, but when I do come... Whomsoever you will approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality or your giving unto Jerusalem. And if it's fitting that I will go also, they will go with me. Now I want to just talk about verses 3 and 4 and tell you something else about the Apostle Paul that distinguishes him from most preachers that you're going to meet. He would not touch the Corinthian money. He would not even carry it. It would not be found on his person. He stayed out of the money. And you preacher out there, I know that there are preachers that listen to this broadcast, quite a few of them. In fact, I guess we have some appeal to preachers. Stay away from the money. Leave it to somebody else. God raises up other men to handle the funds that there might be in God's work. The preacher should stay away from the money. The apostle stayed away from the money. He said, you pick out your own fellows and you write it down. Whoever you approve, by your letters. And I'll send those fellows with the letters by you. And if I'm going, okay, then they go with me. 
but I'm not carrying the money. I'm not carrying the letters. You write the letters, those fellows will carry it, and when they get to Jerusalem, they'll see that these are men approved by you to carry the money. The apostle not only wouldn't have collections going on while he preached, he wouldn't even carry the money. He stayed away from the money. And that's a wonderful principle. So preacher, stay away from the money. Stay away from it. And God will bless you in that. What a wonderful principle and example we have here by the Apostle Paul. And what would happen in Christianity, do you suppose, if the preachers all stayed away from the money, if they weren't trying to engineer the giving, if they weren't watching the budget so much? Do you think we'd have the conditions we have today? No. Let me ask you this. Do you think we'd have the men in the pulpits that we have today? Absolutely not. What have we done? We've built a system by ignoring the scriptures whereby we have men totally dominated in their minds and in their programs by the thought of money. And what actually is money? Well, God has us to deal with money so he can prove us to be faithful. It's a small thing. It's a small thing. Money's a small thing that God uses to test our faithfulness. And if we're faithful in those things, then he will commit to us the true riches. But what do we have today? We have men after the money. Now the Bible has a title for a fellow that is after the who preaches for money, who contractually preaches for money. That title is not pastor. That's a good solid Bible word, meaning shepherd, a real shepherd of the sheep. I don't think it's a title, but it's a role that somebody needs to fill in every church. Maybe more than one need to shepherd in God's church. But the Bible term for a guy who makes his contractual arrangements to teach, that's called hireling. That's the Bible term, a hireling. He's a hired man. And what we know about the hireling is when the wolf comes and when the attacks come to the church or when the church gets in trouble, boom, he's gone. And where is he gone? By the way, he's gone and gotten himself hired probably for more money or a similar deal in another place uh, whereby when trouble comes, uh, he'll be gone again. Well, your church doesn't need a hireling. You should make sure you don't have one because it's a sad time to find out when the troubles come. Does this mean that nobody is uh, to be uh, compensated for his true work in the Lord? Of course not. It doesn't mean that at all. But you watch out for the fellow who's busy making his own arrangements. You watch out for the fellow who's touching the money because he's not like the Apostle Paul He stayed away from the money, he did not use his own power, and he let God take care of him in his own way. Well, I hope that that's helped you. We're now into the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. We'll finish up this book next time, and then down the road, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm John Malone, this is BibleStudy.net, and we'll see you next time.